0: Blob Talk Radio Hi there, welcome to Teach Me To Talk The Podcast. I'm Laura Mize, Pediatric Speech-Language Pathologist, and I'm so excited that you join me for today's show. We are going to finish up this short little series, this is part three today, talking about speech intelligibility in toddlers, and we are specifically today going to discuss four different official (laughs) diagnoses that result in kids who talk and are really, really difficult to understand. And this can be super, super tricky, just when you're talking about the diagnostic portion, because how do you know what's wrong with a kid who barely talks anyway? So when a kid is still minimally verbal, you really can't make the kind of reliable diagnostic um, opinion. I guess opinion is not the best word to use here, but it kind of is that. Because if you don't have enough to go on with a kid, you really can't say if he has apraxia or dysarthria or if this is a phonological disorder or even a speech delay, you've got to have something to analyze. And so that's why it's so tricky for speech pathologists to really nail down a firm speech diagnosis, particularly when a kid is under three. And parents sometimes get a little frustrated with that because they feel like, surely to goodness you know, you're supposed to be a communication expert here, surely you can just kind of look at him and tell me specifically what is going on with him. And it's just not so easy with speech because, again, we need to look at the kinds of errors that a child is using. We need to see if there are any patterns. We need to see if that kind of fits with how he looks, how the rest of his little body is coming together, or if there's a known diagnosis that affects or would affect his articulatory system. And so let's just sort of talk about all of those Factors and all of those things that really make it hard (laughs) for speech pathologists to really, really definitively diagnose a kid with a speech or articulation disorder. Now, remember that we do want to separate the difference between speech and language, and if you've listened to the first parts of this series, we talked about that. Remember, language is vocabulary. It's what words mean. It's how long your utterance is it's uh, the grammar or the syntax and so again that's the language part it's what you say speech is how you say it how easy are you to understand so that's what we're going to be looking at today uh, and I forgot to mention this person a speech pathologist named Dr. Caroline Bowen who is an Australian speech language pathologist and. Uh, She's an expert, certainly, in looking at speech sound disorders. She really does a lot with kids with um, these kinds of issues. So speech intelligibility is kind of her thing. And if you've never been to her website, and if you are a speech pathologist who likes to look at things that are a little more academic-looking and sounding, if you're that kind of person, check out her website, speech-language-therapy.com is a really good comprehensive review called Classification of Children's Speech Sound Disorders. And I'll try to link it at teachmetotalk.com under the podcast post for today and we're show number 318 if you want to go back and look at this link later. but she really takes a pretty um, clinical look or academic look at speech sound, Uh, disorders, and talks about speech delay with a genetic component, speech delay uh, with an oral motor component, speech delay with a developmental or psychosocial involvement. So, again, beyond the scope of this show, and if you're a parent listening, certainly more than you ever (laughs) wanted to take a look at as far as speech sound disorders go. But it probably will be helpful to SLPs, Um, out there who are looking for, again, a more clinical reference. So you can certainly check that out. All right, so let's talk about the four issues or the four diagnoses that we're going to be discussing in the show, and let me just say this is just a brief overview. I do not want this show to be more than an hour long because, frankly, I think that's about all we need to think about (laughs) as far as which specific diagnosis fits best for kids who are still in that earliest developmental period, so under three. Now, once a kid has that third birthday, I do feel a little differently about making sure that we have a firmer diagnosis in place. And certainly by the time they're in kindergarten. But again, remember the reason that it's harder here is because kids are more likely to be misdiagnosed. Something really does sometimes in toddlers start out looking like one thing And then you just don't know the kid quite well enough, or maybe you don't have a complete history and you're just not able to put all the puzzle pieces together yet. And then you figure out, "Mm, it's not really this, it's this. And so that's another reason that our national organization, the American Speech and Hearing Association, is so cautious about encouraging We practitioners in the field who work with toddlers to be super, super careful about using some of these terms, especially apraxia, which we'll get to when a kid is under three, because, again, we don't want to mislead parents and we certainly don't want to provide a diagnosis that turns out to be incorrect. So, again, that explains some of the hesitancy with our national organization with not wanting children to have as pharma diagnosis, so you can say working diagnosis or suspected diagnosis when we're talking about some of these things too, and and we'll get to that in in each of the specifics. But first, let's just start off with um, the first diagnosis that we're reviewing today, which is just simply speech delay. Now, in order to really talk about this, we need to define or define or differentiate the differences or the difference between delay versus disorder. And if you've listened to this show for any length of time, this is probably the 20th time (laughs) you've heard me say this, but I'm going to say it again because it's relevant. Delay means there is just a problem with timing. So everything's coming in as expected. It's just at a slower pace. So there's nothing unusual about what's happening, particularly if you are well-versed in speech development you've seen this stuff, You, you again, it, there's nothing that really makes you scratch your head and think, hmm, what is going on here? What do I call this? Because you're taking a kid just who's at an older age, but his speech sounds like he's much younger. So that's a speech delay. And remember what disorder means. Disorder means that there are some atypical patterns present, there's some unusual errors that a kid is using. Again, this is a kid that would make you stop and scratch your head and go, hmm, I don't really know what to call this, or gosh, it's feeling like it's this, but but let me see if I have these other characteristics that would accompany this diagnosis to make me feel really, really comfortable about knowing that's what's going on. And so again, disorder means atypical development, and delay is typical development, but slower. So those are our big things. So if we're looking at speech delay, what would that look like? It just means, again, that there's a, a slower rate of acquisition. So what do you do? You take the age that a kid is, <laughs> you analyze his speech sound repertoire, and you think, okay, what am I seeing here? It, it, is this just, he's just using sounds that would be consistent with a younger toddler. So this this is how I do it. If a kid is over two, I look at the sounds that we know should be mastered by twenty four months. And remember we viewed this a couple of show, reviewed this a couple of shows back in part one of the series, so in show number three sixteen. So if you've not listened to show three sixteen and you want to really get that um, review, the initial speech sounds that are consonant wise that a child should have mastered, P B M, T D N H K and G. And then I throw W in that category as well. So, you know, sounds at the beginning of the word and W would be one of those consonant sounds too. And then a kid by 24 months also produces most vowel sounds correctly. So if I'm seeing a kid who's over two and I'm hearing these sounds but not many other consonant sounds... Uh, but these are mastered. Let's say he's close to three, but he's but he doesn't have any final sounds yet. We're not hearing any other thing that would lead us to believe that he sounds more like a three-year-old than a two-year-old. That might be a kid that you'd look at with speech delay. So that, uh, again, let me say something, too, that I forgot to say. Kids can have both a speech issue and a language issue, which most of our little guys, not all, but most of our little guys in Early intervention, specifically the ones that are difficult to understand. This is what's really, really going on. It isn't just a language problem. It isn't just a speech problem. There's both. Um, there, there would be some children that I, you would say, you know, speech delay is their only issue, and those are kids again that sound a little bit younger or a little bit less mature than you think they are. But again, we're. we're Teasing the language, pulling the language piece out. We're just teasing the speech pieces out today. We're just looking at the intelligibility piece. So a lot of doctors will give a child a generic kind of diagnosis, speech delay, if they're not hearing any speech sounds, (laughs) uh, emit from that child's mouth, or everything sounds pretty much like a child during infancy, with oohs and coos and things. And actually, a lot of physicians, though, kids are late talker, parents aren't hearing very many words, even if there's a lot of great babbling going on, so that we are hearing lots of different consonant sounds. We just don't know what that would mean. The pediatrician's not saying, he's not differentiating, this is a speech problem versus a language problem, because the truth is if that kid has lots and lots and lots of different sounds, but they're just not, combined or strung together in a way where we could recognize them as a real word, that's probably a language problem and not a speech problem. Do you get what I mean? Especially if you're an SLP, you should get that. That should make sense to you. And that might be a way for you to kind of think about it. It's a little muddy <laughs> when we try to explain it to a parent that way, but certainly as an SLP you should be able to think about it that way, and that might make it easier as you are talking with a parent and, and you know they're saying, they're asking you exactly what's going on. You'll be sure to emphasize the language piece of, of what's going on with a child like that versus the speech piece. And let's talk about the opposite of that. A kid who just had a language delay um, would have, again, oh, that's kind of what we just did. Let's see, how can I make that example opposite? I, I, I don't. I don't I'm probably getting everything all kind of. Again, muddy in the water is more than I would, but when there's a language delay uh, or a kid who just has a speech delay, let's go with it this way, (laughs) a kid who has a speech delay but doesn't have a language problem is using a lot of gestures. He understands what's going on. He just maybe doesn't have um, the sounds to really support lots and lots of great word attempts and great Uh, language attempts there, but he's really communicating. I mean, there's no doubt that he understands that he should engage with other people. There's no doubt that he knows what words mean. There's no doubt that he's trying to communicate by using a lot of gestures. He may even make up a lot of his little signs on his own, and that's a kid that has just more of a speech issue than a language issue. So I hope in my whole little word-finding episode there that I didn't... (laughs) confuse you anymore with thinking, okay, you know, a language kid versus a speech kid. And if you're a parent and this makes no sense to you, don't worry about it. That's not what's important. This is really for our SLPs who are trying to wrap their heads around this or developmental therapists or occupational therapists who are listening to the show to be able to serve their little friends in the best possible way and they're increasing their own knowledge base. That would be uh, maybe a good example for you to think about, you know, a kid who's has more speech issues than language issues, or a kid who has more language issues than speech issues. That might be a thing for you to really kind of try to wrap your head around um, as you're listening to the show today. All right, so that was a speech delay. Let's quickly move on to this next diagnosis, which lots and lots of speech pathologists have sort of forgotten about. We don't really think about the term or the diagnosis dysarthria, D-Y-S-A-R-T-H-R-I-A. If you're a parent listening to this and you've never heard of that before, what is dysarthria? And again, some speech pathologists, you know, we study this in grad school and our undergrad programs, We know what it means from a really clinical perspective and then we start to practice and we don't really use this diagnosis as often as we probably should. So let me give you the clinical definition. Dysarthria is a motor speech disorder. That just means there's problems with articulation. And remember, articulation means what? just sounds. How does he put together sounds? And it affects the muscles. So there's a neuromuscular component and again what does that mean if you're a parent? Your brain the neuro part controls every single part of you and so neuromuscular control it means that the part of your brain which is specifically responsible for activating whatever muscle and whatever part of the body you're talking about has had some kind of injury or difference again it could be from birth that causes that part of your body to not function as we would expect. So your muscle tone is either high, meaning your muscles are tighter, or um, more rigid in that part of your body. And again, this can certainly affect speech sounds as well if your muscles are really, really tight in your mouth. And then we have kids on the other side. We really think more, I think, sometimes about kids with low muscle tone issues. So our little friends with Down syndrome, a lot of our, we know, up to a third of kids with autism have low muscle tone or hypotonia. Lots and lots of other diagnoses, cerebral palsy. Certainly kids can have the high muscle tone or the low muscle tone. And, again, dysarthria is the speech diagnosis that we associate with the muscle problems that are due to uh, a neurological difference and but we we don't always call it dysarthria. We may call it, you know, unintelligible speech or speech disorder. But again, this is the proper diagnostic term for our little friends who do have neuromuscular issues or a diagnosis that we've already talked about, Down syndrome, CP, those kinds of things, any kind of genetic abnormality or genetic diagnosis which resulted in muscle tone differences. So those kids have dysarthria. And if you'll think about it from a speech language pathology perspective, remember the Systems. if you were studying, remember studying the systems approach, you know, respiration, your breathing, phonation, your vocal folds activating your voice, resonance, you know, your nasal cavity, and then certainly articulation, all of the muscles in your mouth, those issues, and then fluency, of course, but those issues are all affected in children who have dysarthria or in children who have that, neuromuscular diagnosis going on. And so what, what happens? What are the results? What, is, what does speech sound like in those kids? So let's just review some symptoms of dysarthria. So abnormal speech, rhythm, or the intonation, that's kind of what we were talking about with fluency. How smooth-sounding are they? They might have a lot of breathiness. That relates to the resonance issue. Uh, with is it hypernasal, hyponasal? We know that that always is structural, but you know, I digress. And this is getting well beyond the scope of this show for many parents. But I just I want you to think about this if you're an SLP how many systems are affected in a kid with dysarthria and so when we have a a difficult a lot of times our little guys with dysarthria will have feeding issues too why is that because the mouth is responsible for feeding too in addition to talking so we would expect that because it's the muscle that's the problem is there it's it's muscular there and again it's not a structural problem per se in that it's um an assault or an injury that happened to their mouth it's the the point of that difference is, again, neurological or in his little brain. So that might be a way to explain it to parents as well. We'll see drooling in kids with dysarthria, Sometimes, uh, well, a lot of times That limited range of motion It could be with the lips It could be with their jaws It could be with their tongue And all that results in poor articulation Meaning they're just not as easy to understand And why is that? Because they have a harder time Getting those muscles to move And they don't have that crisp contact As we would expect from mouth muscles in kids And so, again, you can see If there's any kind of muscular involvement It does result in um, limited intelligibility. You could have a faster speech rate with certain kinds of dysarthria. A slower, slurred speech is how we typically think about dysarthria. And certainly, because we have the core muscle strength affected, because again, this is a whole body problem. With uh, lots of children, they'll have a really soft volumes. So when you try to hear them, their little voices are just so, so soft. So that really increases the difficulty in understanding uh, those kids as well. So our, my bottom line is this. When we're talking about those diagnostic characteristics, if you're not sure what to call something with the kid, if he has a diagnosis that affects muscle tone, go with dysarthria. Because that think about dysarthria first. Uh, because that's the most likely issue that you're going to hear with his speech, with his connected speech in particular. And remember, kids with dysarthria always have other motor issues too. So that's another thing to sort of think about. Um, Let's move on and talk about what we do as far as, a therapy plan, initial treatment strategies with kids with dysarthria. Now, remember, they're going to struggle to get speech going too. They may also have a language problem in addition to this. And certainly our little friends with Down syndrome and other genetic kinds of diagnoses would certainly probably also have a language component. But if we just are thinking about the speech part, it's just physically harder for them to talk. And I like to... Be sure that I'm being super positive with parents but at the same time really, really honest and saying, hey, speech with these kinds of kids, when they start to talk, they are going to be harder to understand. We're going to have to work on this for a long time because this just accompanies what we would expect based on his diagnosis. Okay, let's look at treatment. I'm skipping on down my outline here. Oh, and I, I, did, I don't think I mentioned this at the beginning. If you want the longer version of this material and the more in depth version, and to get the written um, information that I've produced from this material, check that out in my course, Early Speech Language Development Taking Theory to the Floor. You can get great treatment recommendations there as well, and then take a look at some video clips of some children who have the specific diagnoses that we're talking about today. And so you can find that information at com, and it's on sale right now. Get the coupon code there and save yourself some money. It's 12 hours, so for lots of us who are always looking for Continuing education credits to fulfill our licensure or credentialing obligations, that's an option for you, so I wanted to mention it. Okay, as far as treatment goes, I am a language, language, language person, even though we're talking about speech in this series. So make sure that you get language going first and communication first. And, again, you can use the hierarchy that I I look at with every single kid. Are his social skills moving along. If that's yes, then you look at receptive skills and cognition. If that's moving along, okay you don't have to work on that as much. Then we look at expressive language and then last we look at intelligibility. So again, even with the kids with dysarthria, even when you think, Okay, his speech is going to be difficult to understand because it may be slurred, he's probably going to have distortions and let me just mention what are distortions again. That's just the sound is there, but it's just a, it's not as crisp or as clear as we would like to hear it. Kids with dysarthria have more of those kinds of issues or we're expecting to have more of those issues than say omissions or deletions where you completely leave off the sound, but certainly that can be present as well. So even if you think, okay, because of the dysarthria, he's gonna be hard to understand, you still have to consider those other components of communication first, and that's my point here. Don't really address tons of those speech-related issues until we have all the of those other foundational pieces in place first, all right? So let's move on to our and and let me just say kids with dysarthria two you have to worry more about or be more concerned too about their whole little bodies because their core strength that affects their their respiratory system like we've talked about. Their volume is going to be lower they're just going to have weaker voices. They may not be able to produce enough airflow so that they can say more than a syllable or two together. So that affects their language development or, or how their language appears to look because they can't get out those longer phrases and sentences on, on with how their little bodies are cooperating with the respiratory support. So you'll have to have an OT and PT involved with those kids to really, really – provide that foundation for uh, improved speech because their muscle tone is getting better and better and better. All right, or the effects, let's just say that. Let's say that the effects of muscle tone, you don't really improve muscle tone, but you improve strength, you improve coordination, and so having a PT or OT kind of help you take a look at that and, and do the big body work certainly will affect Outcome with speech intelligibility with children with dysarthria. All right, let's move on to apraxia. Apraxia. Oh my goodness, we can just get ourselves in just in a tizzy talking about toddlers with apraxia because again, because all of these speech issues look the same, in a kid who's minimally verbal, lots of people get whacked out, (laughs) boy, that's a real professional term, isn't it, about giving a toddler the official diagnosis of childhood apraxia of speech, or we used to use dyspraxia a lot. Uh, And if you're a parent, you're hearing all these developmental verbal dyspraxia. We're all talking about the same thing, but now the most preferred definition is childhood apraxia of speech. It's a motor speech disorder, but it occurs in the absence of neuromuscular problems, meaning that it's not as obvious. With dysarthria, I didn't talk about before, but you can tell that there are muscle tone differences. So in a low tone, a child with low muscle tone, his face looks a little fuller. Sometimes parents have said to me, oh, it's fatter, his face looks fatter. That's not always the most, you know, some parents would get their feelings really hurt at that kind of description, but it's just because of the muscle tone is... Um, Lower there, on the lower end of that, and we didn't talk about muscle tone has you know there's a whole continuum of muscle tone from high tone to low tone. Our little friends with cerebral palsy who have high muscle tone really may stay pretty stretched out, meaning that their muscle- and when I say stretched out, I don't mean loose, I mean pretty tight, so that their little bodies sometimes look they stay in a position where they could even almost look like they're um, purposely doing it, but that's how their muscle time is. They're ju- they're really. Um, I'm trying not to say this, but I'm trying not to use language that would offend any parent here. But I've I worked with children who. Let me. I'm getting myself in trouble. Let's just keep moving. Boy, I can tell it's Saturday. Perhaps. <laughs> oh, never mind. Let's just keep moving. All right. Um, but apraxia is different than that because there are no obvious muscle problems. And in dysarthria, there are obvious differences that you can see with a kid's muscle tone. And in apraxia, not so much. So the problem is of the movement or planning or executing the movements to produce intelligible speech. But again, you're not going to be able to look at it. And like kids with dysarthria, have open mouth postures a lot because their muscle tone is low and it's more difficult for them to close their mouths because it takes more effort. And kids with apraxia, they may also keep their mouths open and drool a little bit, but there's no muscle tone problem there. With those kinds of kids, it's usually just more, again, perceptually based. You don't really want to call it a sensory problem because that's not really it, but again, it's just a lack of, planning or execution there, there's nothing wrong with their, or nothing different about their muscle tone to get going. But here's the truth. It results in the same kinds of issues. They're harder to understand. Um, they, they, when they try to talk, just their intelligibility is decreased. And so let's look at some specific characteristics of apraxia. Now, if you look at, let me give you two good websites. Nancy Kaufman, who is a renowned expert in the area of childhood apraxia of speech, her website is kidsspeech.com and she's got some great stuff on there. And then you can also get fabulous, fabulous, fabulous information at apraxia-kids.org, and that's what I'm going to read from, just their list of diagnostic characteristics of children with um, childhood apraxia of speech. So... Limited repertoire of vowel sounds, and so their vowels just are mushier, harder to tell. He's using this sound versus this sound. Vowel errors are really, really common in apraxia, not so much in dysarthria, so that's another Way to separate the difference between a kid who has apraxia and dysarthria. There's also with apraxia variability of errors. They're inconsistent. So a kid may say a word one day like this. Uh, let's let's take the example I always use, and I think I used this in the show on part two. So let's say he's talking. He's trying to say Elmo. One day he may call Elmo mo that's all he says he leaves off the first syllable but the next day he may call him momo the next day he may say eh eh for elmo uh you know the the beginning part of that eh eh he might one day one time get it right you know m And then mess up the vowel, Emma, instead of Elmo. And so, again, he says it different every time he tries to say the word. That makes it so hard for parents and so hard for speech pathologists as we're listening to this child because sometimes you have to really listen and think, is he trying to say a different word here, especially if there's no context. Now, if we have a kid who's really just trying to imitate us and we say a word, he says a word, we say a word, he says a word, That's easier to kind of pick out the errors at that point because you know sort of what he's trying to say, but here's the kicker. Kids with apraxia have a horrible time, especially at the beginning, trying to imitate direct models. So that's another characteristic that may help you separate uh, and you're going to try to really wrap your head around a diagnosis. Kids with dysarthria really don't do that. When they their errors are consistent because their muscle tone doesn't change, and if they can't produce the sound because of this weakness in a muscle or just difficulty moving that range of motion piece that we talked about before, that that error is not going to change without a lot of work. And so that's another factor that helps you differentiate dysarthria from apraxia, although the muscle tone issue should be the very, your biggest difference there. Here's another thing about kids with apraxia. Their errors increase with the length of comple- or the complexity of their utterances. So when they have words with lots of syllables or words that have three consonants in a row, like a word like street, that S-T-R. That's going to be hard for most toddlers, by the way, but it will just be excruciatingly difficult for a, a preschooler who has apraxia to get some of those really, really challenging combinations. So words like refrigerator, words like um, Methodist, words like, I'm using kind of adult um, the kind of classic examples for multi words here. But just just think about um, even even if a kid is trying to string together words in a phrase and he's got a lot of complex words going on, he is going to have difficulty with that. And because it's so hard to do, he'll start to drop syllables. And really, really a word that he might be able to say clearly as a single word leaves off part of it when he gets it in a phrase because it's just too hard and so things start to fall apart a little bit is how I like to explain that to parents. Again, context is so important with children with apraxia because they may do just fine with the word when it's a single word and then you try to get it in the phrase again and it is just really, really hard uh, because you can't get the word, um, say the combination is different. He might say please pretty closely um, to, uh, you understand the word please when it's a single word, but then he tries to get it with another word, more please, and he may change his vowel. You know, instead of more please, he may do more pa, and you think, he just said please, he just said E very well when it was just by itself, but he puts it together with another word and it falls apart, so that is always a big red flag that apraxia may be what's going on with their uh with that with kids who are doing that. A big thing for me that I look for in kids with apraxia is called oral groping or verbal groping um but us let, let's call it let's call it oral groping. Because that's more accurate definition. There, this just means that their little mouths—they're searching. So if you're watching them, they—they're moving their mouths without even talking because they're trying to get it in the right place. It's that planning and execution piece. They can't always—they don't always control how <laughs> how they're even supposed to start a word sometimes. And so you'll look at their little mouths and they're moving their mouths, but nothing's there, nothing's coming out, and you think, oh, my goodness, what is this? Think apraxia. Start to investigate apraxia when you see that happen. If you've never seen oral groping, I have some good examples of that. In the course that I mentioned, Early Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, there's a little girl in my steps to building verbal imitation in toddlers who had some groping in her video clips as well. And then great examples of that are in my DVD, Teach Me to Talk with Apraxia and Phonological Disorder. So take a look at that DVD if you need to see that. And if you're a therapist and haven't seen it before, you need to know what it looks like so that when you see it with a little client that you'll be able to identify it. Other things that may describe children with apraxia but that are less likely to contribute to that differential diagnosis, meaning how can we Say that a kid definitively has apraxia versus something else. Just delayed onset of speech is also an issue in kids with apraxia, but I just want to tell you same thing that we've already talked about with kids with dysarthria and speech delay. They have delayed onset of speech as well, so you can't always use that. Limited babbling certainly is present sometime, uh, Well, in most children with apraxia, Parents say they were so, so quiet as an infant, but I also, you know, I'm thinking about my little friends who have a dysarthria diagnosis because of those muscle tone issues. Lots of times parents have said that about them as well. So, Think about that when you're reading some of these lists sometimes. A child doesn't have to have every one of the features to have the specific diagnosis that we're talking about and sometimes the characteristic will be on all of the diagnoses that we're discussing. So you can't just look at one or or two variables and say, oh, that's it, that's what he has, which is what parents will want to do. You've got to look at the totality there and make sure that you're considering every single thing. So a parent can't see a list of apraxia and say, poor speech intelligibility, delayed onset of speech, limited babbling, that's it, that's what he has. You need more than that. You've got to look at at other things that are going on to really be able to say. And that's why I think apraxia is overdiagnosed in toddlers. Sometimes I kind of go back and forth. It depends on the range of kids or my caseload, I think, at any given year. I'll go back and listen to a podcast that, you know, I did years and years ago because this show is nine years old. Or, you know, I really have thought before, okay, apraxia is underdiagnosed because so many kids have motor speech issues going on. And But then I'll just come in contact with so many kids who have an apraxia diagnosis from the first speech pathologist that they saw, but the kid has a muscle tone problem. And I think, well, the therapist knew something was wrong and knew this kid needed a diagnosis, but it's not apraxia. It should have been dysarthria. So make sure that you're not making that mistake as well if you're a therapist. Uh, Here's another thing about apraxia. It can be, because we're talking about the speech intelligibility part here today, lots of kids can just have a straight apraxia issue, meaning they don't have anything else going on. Their expressive language is phenomenal. There are no problems with cognition. They are social, social, social. But it's just a speech part. Or apraxia can accompany other diagnoses. Lots of kids who are on the spectrum. So lots of kids with autism also have apraxia. Up to 66% in some studies. That's huge. That is just phenomenal. So you have to really, really think about is apraxia this kid's only problem or is it just part of the bigger problem? And I'll say a lot of parents who have kids with autism will try to explain away all of a kid's issues just due to the apraxia. And apraxia just refers to the speech part. So kids who have just a straight, C-A-S, childhood apraxia of speech diagnosis, do not have social problems. They are engaged with other people. Their receptive language is fantastic. They read and use nonverbal communicative uh, things methods with kids who are just apraxic, they don't have problems with gestures and things, but kids with autism do. And so you really have to help parents separate those things and say, you know, yes, I agree with you that he probably has apraxia, but that does not explain every single communication issue that we see going on with a child. And that's hard for a parent to hear. I understand why a parent would perhaps go there and they prefer the apraxia diagnosis over the autism diagnosis, but you'll just have to help parents. You know, I I can see how a parent would make that, make that um, connection there, but you'll have to talk a parent through that to help them really understand what's going on. So what do we do once we've decided that a kid has red flags for apraxia, that we're giving him a tentative working diagnosis of suspected childhood apraxia of speech? Same thing we did before. We've got to get communication going, and the best way to get communication going is to make sure all those pieces are addressed that we talked about. We have to look at his social skills. have to look at receptive language and cognition. We have to look at expressive language. What is he trying to say well before we worry about how to say it? Kids with apraxia are good candidates for signing. Now, some... Experts will say, well, if they have a true apraxia that affects their whole little body with motor planning, that signs will be hard for them. My experience has been signs are fantastic for kids that we suspect apraxia is the root cause of what's going on because it helps refine or gives a lot of, uh, we provide a lot of practice with that motor planning system in general. So we get those little hands moving. We make sure that that kid has a way to communicate. And, again, I feel like it primes the pump. It gets them ready to talk because we're addressing another piece of that fine motor coordination issue. And, again, we help kids become super communicative, meaning that they try, 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 try to do everything that they can to communicate. And, again, that just sets the stage for better well, at least more speech attempts when previously that may have been really, really difficult. Another thing we want to do with kids that we suspect have apraxia is really get that uh, verbal imitation piece going. Now, oral is technically different than verbal. If When we say oral imitation, that just means that they are doing mouth movements even without speech or a speech sound, but verbal, we've got speech sounds going there. So you may have to start with imitation, with actions, and with movements of the mouth that do not involve speech. But if a, if apraxia is really what you're going, what you're dealing with, you got to get some sounds inserted there for it to really, really make a difference. So. Animal sounds, anything that's sound effecty, like play sounds, those are great, as well as easy, early exclamatory words that we discuss over and over and over on this show. Wee, uh-oh, whoa, wow, pow, all of those little kinds of words are fantastic first targets for kids with apraxia. Also, because there's an emotional component and many, many times when our kids with apraxia are excited and revved up a little bit, that's when it's easier for them to pop out a word and certainly when it's easier for them to imitate. So look at those things. Also, the more automatic you can make a response in kids with apraxia, the more likely you're able to actually get the word. So things like verbal routines, so counting, one, two, and then you do that expectant waiting for that child to pop out three or ready, set, and you're waiting for him to say go. A lot of times setting up those automatic speech contexts can be like magic for kids with apraxia because the language is there. They just have a harder time with the speech part, the planning and executing how to get that specific word out. And remember here with... With kids with apraxia, oral motor exercises are doing mouth um, repetitive movements with, that aren't connected to a speech sound aren't beneficial for kids with apraxia. But guess what? <laughs> kids with dysarthria need an oral motor component to their treatment plans. Now, I forgot to mention that when we were talking about dysarthria. Because, like I said before, I'm a language, language, language person, and I'm always thinking about, you know, how how are we getting to that word? Not necessarily supporting the improvements in coordination and strength, the components for uh, muscle tone, how how that, um, just the underlying musculature there. Kids with dysarthria need that oral motor support, whereas kids with apraxia don't. All right, let's quickly move on and finish up here with our fourth diagnosis. Now we're talking about phonological disorders. Phonological issues really are supposed to be the linguistic or the language part of, not language per se, but it's not, there's no motoric involvement at all. It really is at that processing level of the brain, meaning how do I combine these sounds in order to make this word intelligible. And here's the deal with phonological processes. These are referring to patterns of sound errors that even typically developing children make as they simplify speech when they're learning to talk. So here's the kicker. A kid can't have a phonological disorder until he's over three because these simplification processes that we're talking about really are um, normal. And so if I see a kid or if I hear a parent say, you know, my 24-month-old has been diagnosed with a phonological disorder, I think, gosh, they probably meant phonological delay or speech delay. But at the same time, I don't even think we should be calling it that because it's normal for kids to take words that are more complex and more difficult to pronounce and to try to, Make them easier. Classic example, spaghetti. A lot of two-year-olds say sketty or, or getty or however they simplify that word, and that's okay because that's, again, what we see typically developing toddlers do. And as they mature and add more sounds to their phonetic inventory, they sound, the words sound closer and closer to what they should sound like or closer and closer to adult models. But again, remember, it's really normal for toddlers to sound like that, to reduce consonant clusters. We were talking about the word street before, so they may say seat for street, Or let's take a more classic example. That would be for a word like banana, they would say nana for that. They're leaving off that third syllable because it's just too hard to get it all in there. A great reference that is so family-friendly for discussing phonological processes and phonological disorders can be found at mommyspeechtherapy.com. I like her work a lot. And she has just beautiful handouts that you're able to download and share with parents. And if you're an SLP like me, you work in early intervention, you've done it, you know, 10, 15, 20 years now, you don't think about articulation or speech intelligibility as a high priority, but then suddenly you get a kid. who's really close to three or even if you work in preschool over three and you know phonological disorder is what's going on with this kid but you've forgotten (laughs) all of those things that you learned and you don't focus on it as much as you used to because you're worried about language with kids, not so much speech. Great, great reference there for um, review for you for phonological processes. So take a look at that if you need to give yourself just some background information about what you know what does a particular process look like the ones that are really really common for us as early interventionists if we're thinking about it in preschool therapists and again if you're a preschool therapist this is probably part of your bread and butter you think about speech sound disorders much more often than those of us who just specialize in birth to 3 but lots and lots of patterns there backing so a kid takes consonant sounds that are made in the front of the mouth and makes them in the back of the mouth. So he does a lot of Ks and Gs for words that have T's, B's, and M's or T's, D's, and N's, so things sound like it's that they're all coming from the back of the mouth. The opposite problem of that fronting a kid who can't do those back consonant sounds yet, so he'll tootie for cookie because the T sound is closer to the front of the mouth than the k- sound in cookie. Stopping, so he takes sounds like F, like fire, and S, like snake, and he substitutes them with, say, a P or a D because he doesn't have that continuant feature He doesn't, uh, or that affricate, so he doesn't keep going with that sound. Um, I think I said that wrong. The fricative sounds like F and S. And so, again, Refresh your memories with this. Go back and look at these patterns and pay um, attention to that, especially when you're explaining it to parents so that they understand. And you can say, listen, when we listen to your child's speech, it's not just this random sound or two that he seems to delete or omit or leave off, however you want to say it. You know, that's a pattern, and this is why, or these sound substitutions are falling into something that I recognize not as just random, but this is the phonological process that I'm observing here. And again, be sure if you are working with a child under three that you explain to a parent that this technically is still not a big deal yet. We don't really think about formally diagnosing children with phonological disorders until they're over three, but I just want to give you a big heads up. This is why it's so hard to understand, and unless we can get a hold of this with some of the things that we'll be doing here in therapy, or, and, hopefully, and, his little system matures, this will potentially be what his speech diagnosis will end up after he turns three and officially qualifies uh, for that diagnosis. Let me just say too, I heard Nancy Kaufman say this one time and I, I really agree with it and I think Pam Marcella said this as well. Lots of kids who start out looking like they have apraxia, we get their motor systems going so that they imitate better, their vowels get really straightened out and they start to mature. They're a lot more consistent in their production of words because so many familiar words become automatic. They end up looking like a phonological disorder kid or they kind of, how Nancy Kaufman said it is, they graduate to a phonological disorder diagnosis because we took care of a lot of those things that made them look like they had childhood apraxia of speech or, or that they just weren't as severe so we were able to tackle that and get in there and then kind of move them forward. And so a lot of times parents will say, well, he didn't really have an apraxia diagnosis or he didn't, you know, he's that was that was that was wrong or that was that was we probably shouldn't have pushed so hard and gotten that diagnosis when he was under 3 cuz now it really is phonological disorder. That's a good thing. Don't look at that as there is a mistake made. Look at it as, aha, he is better. Now, therapists, you may have a little bit of point of contention with that, and, boy, you and I could probably argue all day long if you feel like that. But at the same time, when we get strategies in place for apraxia, and get that motor planning system really, really moving along. Kids do look like that's not their major thing anymore. It does end up looking like phonological disorder, and I I do believe that um, that that's what happens, and that's what a lot why a lot of people think apraxia is misdiagnosed as well or overdiagnosed because kids get better in therapy. And that's the goal. (laughs) So uh, maybe we'll just end the show right there. Let me mention the products that I told you about before. If you are a parent and you're thinking my child is two and he's just gotten a diagnosis of apraxia and I'm freaking out and I don't know what to do, take a look at the DVD Teach Me to Talk with Apraxia and Phonological Disorders because it will get you started with, if he's not talking much at all, with some good sound treatment strategies to move forward with kids who are having a hard, hard time getting those little sounds or getting those little first word productions because of this specific speech sound disorder. Uh, There are children on that DVD as well that have phonological or ended up with phonological disorders. There are several kids who are three on that DVD as well. So you can take a look at those differences and there's a nice section with looking at this is a characteristic of apraxia that's not seen in phonological disorders, and then vice versa. So, it's a great tool for therapists who are looking for some further ways with different and, and concrete examples with differential diagnosis or differential diagnoses issues. So, take a look at that. And for speech language pathologists, that is approved for ASHA. CEUs, so you can get some CE credit there as well with that. And then don't forget the courses that I mentioned, Early Speech-Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor, and then Steps to Building Verbal imitation in Toddlers. And let me just say, whenever I have a kid that's, again, we've said this on the show today, when it, no matter what his diagnosis is, it doesn't matter. We're still going to look at, first, are his social skills moving along? If not, we address it next section, receptive language slash cognition. How's that? If there are issues there, we address that. We look at expressive language. How's he trying to communicate? What what words does he how does he try to let me know? His gestures, his sign language. Is does he have a lot of word attempts? Who cares if the sounds are in the right places or not? Is he trying to tell me something? All of those things are super, super, super important parts of getting a late talker moving in the right direction no matter what his official language or speech diagnosis turns out to be. So if you need some more help, those products will certainly get you in the right, going in the right direction. If you're a parent listening to this too and you're thinking, this is way too confusing for me, I wish I had more of a step-by-step-by-step by step by step, uh, process. Again, this show isn't what's important because today we talked a lot about diagnostics but the most important thing for you is what do I do about it you know who cares what label it is you know whether you say he has a apraxia or a phonological disorder I want to know what to do about it building verbal imitation and tothers is a great way or a great method of getting that expressive piece going because we're looking at the foundations of imitating with actions and moving to more communicative actions that turn into gestures and sign language. And then we move on to think about things that are going on with his mouth. Can he imitate easy, early little play sounds? Can we move that to exclamatory words? What happens when we make speech automatic and verbal routines? And then we get to imitating single words, and then finally on to phrases. So that real sequential step-by-step approach is what's going to be more important for parents to think about rather than worrying about being, or I hope, worrying about being super specific about what is this diagnosis. You know, a lot of times the diagnosis at two is just an educated guess at best. We can't always predict exactly what's going on with the toddler or predict how he's going to look, you know, when he's seven or eight based on how he looks when he's two. So don't get so caught up in figuring out what is wrong. Tell me right now. I need to know exactly what it is because hopefully it's going to change and we're getting, we'll are getting we get strategies in place that will make all the difference, again, in how he looks 27 and 8 because we focused at 2 and 3 on what do we do about it, not specifically what the diagnosis is. And again, you can make a case for, well, I have to know what's wrong before I can treat the right thing Yes and no. And so if you do a good job at looking at what skills are missing or what does he really, really have a hard time with communicatively, again, you're treating the the you're treating the result, not the cause. So you're treating the the, the what's missing, you know what is it that he should be able to do or that I want him to do rather than you know the root cause. We don't really treat autism, we treat social communication issues. Same thing with speech intelligibility. You don't really treat the brain um, difference that causes the dysarthria. You treat the speech that's hard to understand. So I hope that that gives you something to really go on here and really think about. I want to look at making the effects different. I want to look at making the results different and we do that with treatment not with calling something the right name, especially when they're two. All right, I hope that helped you think about speech disorders and delays in a different way. And next time we're going to move on and get back to language and talk about something entirely different. I hope you'll join me. Thanks so much.